Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Happy New Year. Um, yeah, man, what, a, what, a, what an awesome day it is to gather in the house of the Lord and to worship Him. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel as we're continuing our series through the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 1. And so as you get your Bible out, um, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask Him to open up our eyes and to reveal truth to us and to stir our hearts and our affections for Him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you are the one who gathers us to worship you. That through the provision of your Son on the cross, we are allowed in your presence. And that we can make much of you. That we can sing these wonderful truths about you. And that we can constantly be reminded that our hope is in you. God, thank you that you are a God who makes himself known. And that you speak to your people through your word. And Lord, as we open up your word, can you make yourself known to us? Can you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the mind to understand? And can you give us a heart of flesh? that's transformed by your word. May it be more than just information we hear, but may this information change us from the inside out, knowing it's only your work of changing us. Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know what kind of message we need. You know what we're going through, our fears, our trials, our struggles, our frustrations, our anger, our bitterness, our sin. So, Lord, through your word, can you minister to us? Lord, for those who are far away from you, can you call them and draw them near? For those who are asleep, can you wake them up? And for those who are dead, can you make them alive? We plead with you these words. Come and speak to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, we've kind of taken a break of the book of Daniel, so I'm not going to do a whole recap of the book. Otherwise, we'll be here for two hours. Um, But do a quick recap, and then we're going to get into our passage. Now, if you remember the book of Daniel, we said that the book of Daniel is an account of the deportation of God's people into exile, and it specifically focuses on one such individual named Daniel. And the reason why Daniel was writing this book was to encourage God's people that even though they might find themselves in exile, feels defeated, that they need to trust the Lord, that the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is in control, that he has not completely abandoned him, that he is working all things out for his purposes, to accomplish his glory, even though they might not be able to trace his hands. And the message to the people of God in the midst of exile is remain faithful. And the reason why I picked the book for us as as the people of God, when we find ourselves in a time of so much uncertainty, so much volatility, we don't know whether we're coming or going, and everything that we're hearing on the news, we're almost thinking, is this for real or is this a joke? And this, 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 this series is designed to encourage us 
to remind ourselves that the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is in control, and even though we might not understand everything that He is doing, even though we might not be able to trace His hands through everything, we can trust that the Lord is sovereign. And the instruction for us in this series is what do we do as the people of God as we find ourselves in exiles wandering on our way to the promised land? We remain faithful. We remain faithful faithful and that's what i hope this series will accomplish for us now the book of daniel can be broken up into two parts we said as we looked at the book there's two parts the first part chapter one through chapter six really focuses on the prophet it focuses on daniel and the style is kind of narrative it's a story that is telling us of events that occurred in daniel and his three buddies lives and then we get to the second part of the book which is chapter seven all the way through chapter 12 and that reveals the prophecies that consist of visions of the future now as we get to chapter 7 you're going to notice that the book changes dramatically it's strange it's weird I don't know what else to say some of the imageries and the pictures are just really weird it's a nightmare and what we've also noticed it's not chronological so, so for example, in Daniel chapter 6, we read about Daniel and the lion's den under the reign of King Darius, and then you're thinking, okay, chapter 7 is going to progress the story, and the vision is going to have to happen after the lion's den, but we get to chapter 7, and now we're back in Babylon under the ruined reign of King Belshazzar. So which means this is not like a necessarily historical record that's chronological, but this is prophecy. It's trying to give us, it's apocalyptic pictures and trying to to give us a picture of the future and what God is doing. And, And here's the reason why I give you this information of why the book is broken up into two parts. Because in a sense, the first part of the book tells us about the credibility of the author, the experience of the author, and then he gives us the actual message that God is giving him. So in a sense that as we read chapter 7 through chapter 12, the the question you might be wondering is like, how can we trust the credibility of Daniel? How do we know this guy is for real? Well, the first six chapters told us how God worked in his life how he remained faithful to the Lord, how he was able to interpret dreams and visions, and now he himself is receiving visions. And so the first part helps us to believe that the second part is reliable, that God did truly speak to Daniel. Now, as we get to the prophecy part, there's a couple of things that we need to understand. The Bible uses various kinds of genres and literary style to communicate certain truths, to communicate truths to us about God. And so as we get to Daniel 7 all the way through chapter 12, its primary way of communicating truth is what we call apocalyptic literature, which is marked by visions and vivid word pictures. And so Dale Davis, a scholar, he, he writes this, and I feel like it's helpful. Let me, let me read it to you and then try to unpack it a little bit um, and, and tell us what our real job is as we're studying the text. This is what he says. He says, biblical apocalyptic literature 
is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and to encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to oppose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates the message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. So, so basically, here's what he's saying. And think about this. What's the purpose of biblical apocalyptic literature? It's to encourage God's people, okay? Now, when did God encourage his people? When did Daniel write his book? Where were the people of God? They were in, they were in exile. In other words, they were scattered. They were far removed. They lived on the fringes and the outskirts of society. They're watching everything unfolding as they're being oppressed by the world leaders. And what does God do? God, through his prophets, give his people a picture of his kingdom coming. Think about the book of Revelation. When was the book of Revelation written? Where was John? He was in exile on the island of Patmos. And the church, what was happening with the church? Were things great? No, they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. And what does God do? Through his prophet, he encourages his people and say, hey guys, watch this. My kingdom is coming. Look out. I'm making all things new. And this is the purpose of apocalyptic literature. So in our study of this passage, our job is not to find the meaning of every single symbolism. Can we find the meaning of some symbolism? Absolutely. But our job is not to find the meaning of every symbolism, but our job is to look at the main truth that this prophecy is teaching us about. In other words, let's not get lost in the detail of the weeds, but let us look at some of it, but then constantly zoom out and saying, okay, what is the main truth this passage is teaching us about God, about his son Jesus, about how he's redeeming all things and making all things new? And so that's our job. This is the work that we have to do as we study this text. So what we're going to try to do is I'm going to give you maybe some of the meanings of the symbolism. Some of it I'm just going to fly over and the reason why is because I don't know it. I'm not going to speculate and it does not matter because it does not change the main truth. But what I'm constantly going to try to do as we look at this passage is point you to the main truth. What is the main message of this prophecy? What is it teaching us about God? So Let's look at Daniel chapter 7, and then you can see just how weird this passage is for yourself. Daniel 7 verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was laying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. 
Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. See what I mean? It's kind of strange. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, after this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. Uh, Let's stop there. It's kind of getting really strange. What's going on here? Well, first of all, notice, notice what's happening right off the bat. Daniel gives us the year of when he received this vision during the, the year of, of the King Belshazzar of Babylon. So again, we're going back in time, not forward. It's not progressing. And then he describes four beasts. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what's the main message of this passage And some of you are going to say, well, I don't see it. And that's great. Don't see it yet. But my job is, as we're unpacking this, I'm going to show you how it's pointing to the main message. And so as we look at it, we're not going to get lost in the details. We're going to tackle some of it. But we're constantly looking at the main message. What is this passage teaching us about God? You got it? Okay. So if you're taking notes, here is the main message that this passage is teaching us about God. The Lord is sovereign over the nations. That's the main message. The Lord is sovereign over the nations. Now, for some of you that are really smart, you're like, yeah, I really don't see it because in the passage, I don't read anything about God. I just read about scary beasts. Let me show you. Let's ask ourselves this question. Where did the beasts come from? Well, Verse 2 says, look at, look at verse 2, Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Where's the wind? The wind is from of heaven. Who controls the wind of heaven? The Lord does. So in other words, the sea was just the sea, and the Lord took the four winds of heaven. And started stirring the sea, which means the Lord is the one who's raising up these four beasts. Where is he raising them up from? From the, the sea. Now, we know, where I think most of us would agree to this, that the sea symbolically is viewed as the realm of chaos, disorder, the realm of raging with conflict among the nations. So in other words, it's not literally the sea, the ocean that we all love to lay out and get a tan and play in, but rather in the ancient Near East, the sea was, was viewed as the realm of chaos and disorder. 
How do, how do we know that? Well, we see in Isaiah, Isaiah 17, verse 12, how he uses the, 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 the imagery of the sea as the nations. He says, ah, the roar of many peoples. They roar like the roaring of the sea, the raging of the nations. They rage like the rumble of rushing water. In Revelation 21, as some of you have read that passage and your head is kind of confusing because you're a beach person and you read about the sea is no more and then all of a sudden you're like what there is no beach in the new heavens and the new earth and it's like no it's not literally talking about the sea but it's talking about they will no longer be chaos and disorder in passages where it talks about the sea giving up it's dead it's not because all the sailors died in the sea and you can't get the bodies back we know the fish ate them sorry about that but rather what he's saying is the world of chaos and disorder and conflict will no be no more and give up its dead as the Lord raises up the dead and make all things new. So in other words, when we look at verse 2 and we see where are the monsters coming from, the Lord, he is stirring up from the realm of chaos and disorder and conflict and he's raising up these four monsters or these four beasts now what do the four monsters and the four beasts mean or 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 symbolize um we're only going to do the first 14 verses but i want to cheat a little bit look look at verse 17 we look at the interpretation of verse 17 it says these huge beasts four in number are what four kings who will rise from the earth so do you see verse 2, they're rising from the, from the realm of chaos and disorder, which is the earth, and they represent four, four kings. So what's Daniel seeing? He is seeing the Lord stirring the realm of chaos and disorder, raising up four kings. Now think about this. What other vision in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, kind of taught about four kings or four empires. Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue. The statue had four different kinds of medals, and each medal, each body part kind of represented a king. So if you remember, the the gold was Babylon. The silver was Medo-Persia. The, the, the bronze was Greece. The iron and clay was Rome. But instead of now metals, it's being described animals. Now notice each beast is numbered, first, second, third, fourth. Each beast is described, and each beast has somewhat of an activity. And what I want to show you as we briefly look at the beast, because it's not about the beast, I want to show you how the Lord is sovereign over these beasts, okay? The first beast was like a lion, but had wings of an eagle. That is in verse 4. So if we see the parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 7, this beast is going to represent Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I even think the reason why we can say, okay, the, the first beast is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, because both Jeremiah and Ezekiel compare Nebuchadnezzar like a lion and an eagle, because Babylon was ferocious as a lion and was swift like an eagle. An eagle. And look at the three activities. 
Its wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given. Doesn't that kind of sound familiar? Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he lost his mind? What did he do? He roamed on the the earth like an animal until what? He looked up and the Lord restored his senses. Notice the activity of, of, of what's being done to the beast. The beast is not doing it to himself, but rather it's being done to the beast. It's not like the beast is tearing off its own wings and forcing itself up to stand like a man and have a mind of a man, but rather someone is tearing off the wings, making it stand up like a man, giving it a mind of a man. Who is that? The Lord. In other words, even in the vision, even in the description of the beast, the message it's conveying is as ferocious as this beast is. There is one who is performing an activity by tearing off its wings and saying, hey, stand up, and giving it a mind of a man which indicates to us, yes, the Lord is sovereign even over this kingdom. As great as it might seem and as fearsome and as scary as it might seem, the Lord is sovereign over it. Look at the, the, the second beast. The second beast in verse 5 looks like a bear. It was raised up on one side. So in other words, the bear didn't raise itself up on one side, but rather it was raised up on one side, indicating something was done to that beast. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and then it was told, get up and gorge yourself on flesh. And again, these activities have been done to the beast. The Lord is the one that raised it up on one side. The Lord is the one that commands it to gorge yourself on flesh. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, God would never say that. But if you read throughout the entire Old Testament, why does God constantly raise up nations to destroy other nations? That's part of his, his judgment. When Israel was disobeying, who did he raise up? The Assyrian Empire to, 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 to punish Israel. And to punish Assyria, who did he raise up? The Babylonian Empire to punish Assyria and then to punish Judah. And then he raised up the Medo-Persia to punish Babylon for their cruel behavior. So the Lord is sovereign over the nations as he raises them up and brings them down to execute his purpose of judgment and punishment. And again, if we see the parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 7, then this beast that's raised up on one side with three ribs in its teeth is Medo-Persia, which indicates the reason why this beast might be raised up on one side is because it indicates that Persia dominated the, the, the Medes, and the ribs could possibly be a sign, although some scholars say it symbolized nations that are conquered, but it could also symbolize maybe that it was not fasting, but feasting, and it's conquering, and God God says, continue in your feasting, continue in your conquering. But what it shows us again, regardless of the imagery, what's the main message? The Lord is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over the lion like an eagle. He is sovereign over the bear with the three ribs in its teeth. Let's look at the, fourth, the, uh, the third beast. Verse 6 
looks like a leopard with four wings of a bird and four heads. And this beast is powerful. And what was given to this beast? Dominion. Where do you think that dominion came from? The Lord. Who gave this beast dominion? The Lord gave this beast dominion. And more than likely, again, if we go with the parallel, chapter 2, chapter 7, this beast symbolized Greece, Alexander the Great, which with speed and agility that was unprecedented, conquered the world all the way to India and then died suddenly at the age of 33. In other words, this world empire of Greece came like this and it spread quick, but it also died pretty fast. And yet we see the Lord is giving it dominion. The fourth and final beast, that's the most frightening and dreadful of all. It's incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devours, it crushes, it tramples with its feet whatever is left. But Daniel says this beast is different from all the other beasts. Now, if we follow the pattern, chapter 2, chapter 7, first beast Babylon, second beast Medo-Persia, third beast Greece, then the fourth beast, more than likely Rome. Rome surely was the first truly universal empire of antiquity. Rome was characterized by its conquering and crushing power and by its ability to consolidate territories it seized. Do you know how long Rome survived? 1,500 years as being the world dominant power. That's an empire. It crushed everything. But then in verse 8, we read, we read about weird things. We read about horns, ten horns, and then all of a sudden three little horns disappear and another horn from, from the three little horns come and it has eyes and mouth of a human and it's speaking incredible things, blasphemous things. What do the horns symbolize? I don't know. Come back next week. We'll talk about that. No, I'm being for real. Sorry. I told you, some symbolism, not all. Certain things I'm just going to stay away without speculating because I want to focus on the main message. Daniel's vision is bizarre. He sees scary monsters from the chaotic earth. He sees the sovereignty of the Lord. And then he looks to heaven. Now, we're going to read the passage, and you're saying, well, Neil, you've showed us how the Lord is sovereign over every beast except the fourth beast. Okay, let's keep reading, and let me show you how the Lord is sovereign over it. Look at verse, verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like white as wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. So in other words, as Daniel continues to watch, he now shifts to heaven, and he sees a complete different scene. He doesn't see beasts and scary monsters, but he sees thrones, plural, set in place. And then he sees, and he uses the word, and him alone uses the word, the ancient of days who took his seat on the throne. 
So what does that term ancient of days refer to? It refers to God, but it points to God's eternality. In other words, God the Father is the ancient of days because he is the one that is eternal sitting on the universal throne. He is not old and senile, but he is wise and he's eternal and he is bigger and better than any of the four peace that the earth could bring up. And look at the description of the ancient of days. It says his clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like white as wool. In other words, what does that mean? His clothing was white like snow. It speaks of his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his hair, the whitest of wool. What does that mean? It means that he is wise, not beyond years, because remember, he's eternal, but he is wise beyond anything we could ever compare or comprehend. And what kind of throne is he sitting on? Look at, look at this. He is sitting on a throne with flaming fire, and its wheels were blazing fire. What does fire do? Fire destroys, but fire also purifies. So in other words, what kind of throne is he sitting on? He is sitting on a throne that speaks of purifying judgment, because what's he going to do on his throne? He's going to judge. And he's going to purify all that that is impure. And then it also talks about a throne, and you're like, that's kind of weird that it's describing wheels of fire. It's almost like a chariot. And think about this. In the ancient world, what was a chariot? A chariot, what did it symbolize? It symbolized conquest. It symbolized victory. In other words, this throne with wheels of fire that purifies in judgment conquers and is victorious over the nations and then a river of fires flowing coming out from his presence which is constantly cap recapturing this idea of righteous fury and wrath of his judgment and then you see thousands upon thousands ten thousand times ten thousands more than likely angels worshiping the ancient of days but here's a picture of the Ancient of Days taking a seat on his throne, opening up his books. In other words, the court is now in session. Judgment is about to take place. And this Ancient of Days does everything by the book, which means his judgment is fair and his judgment is righteous and who is he going to judge let's keep reading remember i still have not shown you how the lord is sovereign over the fourth most terrifying beast verse 11 says this i watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking and as i continued watching the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire as for the rest of the beast their dominion was removed but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time 
No battle. What happened to that terrifying beast and all the horns and the little horns just mouthing off, speaking blasphemous things? Dead. Thrown in the lake of fire. In other words, the ancient of days have executed judgment on the blasphemous beast and horn. Story over. No epic battle, just an execution of judgment. Which shows us what? The Lord is sovereign over the nations. The Lord is sovereign over these four beasts. Who can stand up against him? No one. For he is the ancient of days. But now we get to the most important verse. Look at verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Remember in the, the, the imagery, how many, was it one throne or more than one throne that he saw in the beginning? More than one, thrones. The Ancient of Days took his seat. And now what does he see? He sees someone like the Son of Man. Now, let's unpack the phrase Son of Man so we can kind of understand what's going on here, okay? What does the phrase Son of Man mean? In the most simplest term, Son of man, which means he comes from man. Uh, we, we see the, the psalmist, he, he, the psalmist addresses God, stating that he created, God created man a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. I know in our mind, especially in the 21st century, when we think about man, when we think about humanity, what do we think about? Evil weak not good and we're like oh we're just human no that's not what the bible teaches about humanity in the beginning when god created man what did he say that's average i've done better no he says it's 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 very good he created man adam and eve and he said it's very good and what did he give adam and eve he gave him dominion it's like here's your kingdom Go and take a hold of it, work it, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over it. So which means son of man is this phrase. He comes from man. He's created in the image of God and he has received dominion over every creation. But again, the fall just kind of fractured and distorted it. But Daniel says, I see someone like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. So in other words, the question that we got to ask ourselves is, wait, wait, before we move on, like a son of man coming from the clouds of heaven. In other words, here is someone that looks like he's of man. But where does he come from? Because where does man come from? From the earth. 
But this son of man, is he coming from the earth like the beast? No, where's he coming from? Clouds of heaven. In other words, what he's saying, here's someone, he's like a man, but he's also divine. Because he's not coming from the earth like a man. He's coming from the clouds of heaven, which indicates some divine manifestation. And so we know the answer. Who is this son of man that likes a man, is divine? His name is Jesus. Now, now, now think about what this means. Jesus used this title for himself exclusively, son of man. And think about this and, and, and the meaning and the implications of this. Unlike Adam, who was the son of man and was given dominion over everything, what did he do with it? He messed it up. Jesus, he is the true man. And he can stand in the presence of God, escorted into the throne of fire of judgment. And he will not be burned up. He is worthy to receive dominion and glory and eternal kingdom that all the people and nations and languages should serve him. In other words, this true man is that all human as that all humans as God's image bearers were meant to be, but failed. We were all son of men. We were all given dominion. What do we end up doing with it? Failed. But not Jesus, the real man. Succeeded. And in verse 14, we see what's been given to the son of man. Dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, all the nations, all the languages will serve him. And how long is his dominion? Ever. Will his kingdom ever be destroyed? No. Now, now real quick, to, to help us understand this, let's compare the Son of Man with the beast, okay? The beast comes from the chaos of the earth. The Son of Man comes from heaven. The beasts were given temporary dominion. The Son of Man was given everlasting dominion. In the dominion of the beasts, there was destruction. Gorge yourself on flesh. In the dominion of the Son of Man, there was glory. What does this teach us about God, the ancient of days? Not only is the Lord sovereign over the nations, but if you're taking notes, the Lord is sovereign over his kingdom. Not only is he sovereign over the nations, but he is sovereign over his kingdom. In other words, the Son of Man that comes from heaven, that enters into the presence of the Ancient of Days, that's been given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that is eternal. God has established his kingdom through his Son, Jesus Christ. And who in the world will ever be able to oppose him? Why? Because his kingdom will endure forever and will never be destroyed. What kind of king, what kind of empire will be able to give such a guarantee? Can we give that guarantee? Our nation will last forever? No. Think about this. We're almost done application here. 
why can the Son of Man stand in the presence of the Ancient of Days in front of the throne of fire and not be burnt up and be judged? Because he lived a sinless life. He is perfectly righteous. And why was dominion, glory, and eternal given, eternal kingdom given to the Son of Man? Because of his victory on the cross. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. So what does that mean for us? If we believe that the Lord is sovereign over the nations and the Lord is sovereign over his kingdom, what does that mean for us? What that means for us is this. We should no longer look to the beast. We should look to the Son of Man. Our hope is not in the beast from the earth, but from the Son of Man from heaven. And if our hope is in the Son of Man, shouldn't that change the way we pray and live? And, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is, as we're praying... It should change the way we pray if our hope is in the Son of Man, if our hope is in the eternal King. How did Jesus teach us to pray? In Matthew 6, Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just give me what I need. In other words, rather than praying for temporary fixes, O Lord, fix our government. Oh, Lord, fix Washington. Oh, Lord, give us a better present. Oh, Lord, heal the economy. Shouldn't our prayers be like, dude, that's temporary. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. I am trusting not in these temporary fixes because let's just be honest. Temporary fix might be good for right now, but what happens to every temporary fix? Decays, thus, temporary. It's temporary. But in our praying, as our eyes are on the Son of Man, as our hope is in the Son of Man, our prayer should be eternal, kingdom-minded, geared towards Him, like trusting, come, Lord Jesus, and make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, and consummate your kingdom. We're longing for you. That's what's supposed to encourage. encourage. Remember, apocalyptic literature was given to the people of God when they, life was great, right? No, when they were on the outcast. And what's starting to happen to us? Yeah, life is starting to stink. We're starting to feel the weight of it, noticing these temporary fixes are not doing anything. And so this vision is given to encourage you because as beasts come and go and as powerful and as ferocious they may seem, their dominion will be taken away from them. But one is coming, establishing eternal kingdom. Let your hope be in that. Let your prayer life revolve around that. And so if our hope is in the Son of Man, it impacts the way we pray, but then it also impacts the way we, we live. What does our life revolves around? Who are we serving? Now, notice the instructions in verse 14. He was given dominion and glory in a kingdom so that every people, nation, and language should do what? Serve him. Serve him. If our hope is in the king, what should our lives revolve around? Serving him. Part of serving him is walking with him, obeying him, and proclaiming him, saying, 
The king has come. Get ready. So the question in this new year, I, I think honest questions. Who are you serving? Are you serving the king? Or are you serving yourself? Who are you obey, obeying? Are you obeying the king? The king has come. The king is coming. His kingdom will be eternal. Get ready. Long for it, desire for it, prepare for it, and walking and serving the king so that he may greet you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that in the midst of all these scary beasts that come up and have dominion and destroy and conquer, that you are sovereign over them. And even as we look at our own history in the 21st century, we see kings and nations rise, conquering, destroying. And yet the truth that we're constantly reminded of, Lord, you are sovereign over them. That as believers, we do not have to fear. We don't have to be tossed to and fro by every winds of doctrine and by fears and news and all those kind of things. We can rest in you, trust in you. Help us to respond to this message, Lord, in an appropriate means where we are dedicating our lives to serving you and obeying you because our eyes are fixed on you. May our hearts be encouraged. As we continue to pray, I just want to give you time to reflect on this question. Who are you serving? Are you serving the king or are you serving yourself? Are you obeying the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you submitting to him as your king? And then if there needs to be repentance, why don't you ask the Lord to forgive you? Ask the Lord to help redirect your, your eyes, your ears, your heart, your mind. Ask the Lord to help you take your eyes off the beast and keep your eyes on him. And maybe for some of you this morning, maybe you don't believe you've not submitted to King Jesus. I think there's a warning and an encouragement. The warning is Jesus is king, whether you like it or not. And he rules and reigns, and he will make all things new, and he will rightfully destroy all those who oppose him. But the good news is he is a good king who's laid down his life for you. And as he's laid down his life for you, he is asking, calling you to pledge allegiance to him and him alone and to trust him as the true righteous judge king and to live for him. And the reason why he laid down his life for you is because of his grace and mercy and love he has for you. 
And maybe this morning he's calling you and say, come and submit yourself to me. Look to me, trust in me. And if that's you this morning, can you do it right now? Can you cry out to the king and submit yourself to the lordship of King Jesus, trusting in the provision that he made for you? And next week, we're going to see how the victory of the king is the victory of his people. But for right now, let's get ready to sit at the table. We're reminded of this table that the provision that Christ has made for us, the great wedding banquet that is waiting for us, a feast. And it's something we get to celebrate now, but we don't get to experience the fullness yet until he makes all things new. It's something that we get to taste and see and experience, but not in fullness as we're longing for the full reality of it. And what this table does, it helps us reorient, redirect. Because just like as we studied the passage, our minds automatically wants to focus on the beasts. And what the passage is saying is, yeah, they're there, but don't focus on that. Focus on the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man from heaven. And what this table does, it helps us because as we're constantly focused on all kinds of things, distracted, it brings us back saying, no, life is hard. Yes, there's all these things going on. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the Son of Man. Look about the provision he's made for you. Look at this kingdom and this table he's preparing for you. Come in and feast on him, rest in him, celebrate on him. So when life gets hard, when life gets overwhelming, you feel like giving up, you're reminded you are part of the kingdom of God. You'll be heirs. You'll have dominion. Celebrate that. Rest in that. And it's not because anything you've done, but because it's everything that the Son of Man, the true man, has done on your behalf. Receive. Feast. Believe. Walk. Trust. And so as we distribute these elements, meditate on these truths, the provision that Christ has made for you, the future kingdom that is waiting for us as he's making all things new. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. One cannot study Daniel without reading a little bit of Revelation. (laughs) Sorry, I just need to read this text for you. Just close your eyes and just imagine as we receive these elements. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll, even to look into it. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. Then one of the older said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll at the right hand of the one seated on the throne. 
And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I look and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the old elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under the earth, on the sea and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped this is his body given to us eat it in remembrance of him This is his blood shed for us. The new covenant we have with him that he's redeemed us with. Drink it in remembrance of him. And now in your own time, just praise the Lord and thank him that he has purchased you and redeemed you. You are worthy, Lord Jesus, of all honor, all glory, all power. There is none like you. You are worthy to enter and stand among the throne of God and open up the scroll. For you are righteous and you are victorious. Lord, what a privilege it is that you've redeemed us that we will learn next week that your victory has become our victory. Help us, Lord, not to forget. Help us to fix our eyes on you and be in awe of you. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our King? Amen. Friends, As we come to the end of our services, we have the King of Kings who is our King. Let us fix our eyes on the King. And as you're dismissed, receive this word of blessing over you in Jude 1, 24, 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace and spread this news.